You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part two of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one to whom the one whom I have pained? And I rode as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. We'll pause our reading after verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, I said in the first episode in this series, as we began into 2 Corinthians, that uh, this book is one of perhaps the most personal of Paul's letters, where he lays his heart bare. And you get a sense of that even in uh, what we've just read. That Paul says he has written to let them know the abundant love he has for them. This is a, a letter of deep affection. But as he also says in verse four, it's a letter written out of great affliction and anguish of heart. Now, it's clear that Paul is referring to an earlier letter that he had written to them. Verse three says, I wrote to you as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Now, we don't have this letter that Paul refers to. He refers to it again in chapter seven of Second Corinthians, verses eight to 13, so it will resurface there. We don't have that letter. It's not 1 Corinthians, which he also wrote to this church. It's a different letter that was in relation to an issue in the church. 
and uh, we don't know exactly what happened that uh, lies behind uh, what Paul is saying here, but we do know that there was uh, some sinful behaviour from a man, it seems, in the church. As we read on into second chapter 2, verse 5, it says, If anyone has caused me pain, he has caused it not to, not to me. Or sorry, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So it seems that Paul had had to confront an issue in that church, a moral issue, a sin issue in the life of a man. We might get a hint of that in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about a number of issues in that church, one of which he says in chapter 5 was a man who was sexually active with his father's wife, presumably not his mother, but his father's um second wife. So it could be that man that's in view here or perhaps some other sin uh, in the church. But what seems to have happened is that the Christians in Corinth didn't deal with that issue, with that sin. And so Paul felt he had to make a visit to them. He made a visit to them and uh, that visit, although some of them listened to him, it seems that some did not. And so Paul changed his plans. That's the context of what he says here in verse one from or chapter one from verse 12 downwards. Paul had planned to make a second visit. Verse 15, he, he wanted to, to visit them first. He wanted to visit them. Verse 16 says on his way to Macedonia and to come back to them from Macedonia and have them send him on his way to Judea. And Paul decided not to make that visit. Now, why was that? Because by not making that visit, he clearly opened himself to accusation from them that he was uh, changing his mind. He couldn't be relied upon. Well, Paul tells us that um, he had confidence in the Corinthians. Uh, verses 12 to 14 talk about that. He is not writing anything they hadn't read and acknowledged and he hoped they would acknowledge that they would be proud of him, would boast in him on the day of the Lord Jesus, just as he would boast of them. Paul would take pride in this church who he loved, this church that he had been involved in in starting, this church that he had blessed and sought to lead faithfully. And his hope was that they too would take pride in him. But clearly Paul realised that the church was not responding well to him. The issue was persisting. And so he wrote his letter to them. He made up his mind for chapter 2 verse 1 not to make another painful visit to them. Because he thought that would just cause more difficulty, more problems than it would solve. If he caused them pain, who would make them him glad? but the one he had pained, verse 2. So he wrote as he did. In verse 3, it says, chapter 2, verse 3, so that when he came, he wouldn't suffer pain. He wanted to give them forewarning of the issues. He wanted to put in writing, presumably to give them time to think about that and to take action before he would be with them. If he came to them, the risk was that there would be conflict and an alienation and a split perhaps in the church so by writing, Paul thought that was the best course of action. Now, again, notice how Paul describes that. 
he was making a judgment of wisdom. It wasn't that the Lord told him whether to go or to write, but he was exercising his best wisdom in trying to understand the best way to handle this tense situation. But notice how Paul talks about that. He felt sure, he says at the end of chapter 2, verse 3, that his joy would be the joy of them all. Of them all. He wrote with uh, anguish of heart, verse 4, with much affliction, with many tears. He didn't want to hurt them. He wanted them to know that he loved them. Now that suggests again that some of them read Paul's letter differently. Some of them thought he wasn't being loving. I mean, if he was loving, how could he be talking about sin? Why would he be requiring them to take painful action and discipline against a brother, if that's the issue that he was writing about? Um, and of course, that's a misunderstanding, isn't it? It is not unloving to want a church to take sin seriously. In fact, it is unloving to others in the church who are being harmed if we brush sin under the carpet and ignore it. Paul was truly loving to them and that meant he had to be direct with them. As we'll see in chapter 7, uh, that letter led to the result that Paul was hoping for and he talks about how he didn't want to hurt them but it was necessary to grieve them because they, there is a godly grief that leads to repentance. So that seems to have been what was going on. Paul had visited them because of an issue in the church. Uh, they, that visit had not gone well. It had been painful, perhaps divisive. There seems to have been uh, a majority of people who did listen to Paul. Uh, he talks about a majority in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 2, um, but a minority who didn't. And Paul thought that rather than making another visit, as he had initially planned to do, he should write to them first, which actually seems to have led to a positive result. Although the fact that he still talks about the majority in verse 6 suggests that there may have been a split or there may have been a minority who still did not accept his uh, ruling or his decision. But let's step back from that and look at what Paul says about the way he ministered among them. Verse 12, he says that he can boast and he can say with a clear conscience that he and his fellow workers, Timothy and Silvanus, in verse 19, Silvanus, another name for Silas, Silas and Timothy and Paul had acted with simplicity and godly sincerity. Now, uh, there is a footnote beside the word sincerity that so it says some manuscripts say holiness. Um, uh, but I think um, obviously the translators think that simplicity is the, the, the most likely uh, word that Paul actually used. And I like it partly because we've got two S's, simplicity and sincerity. These are two qualities that I think are markers of genuine, authentic Christian leadership and authentic Christian ministry. There is simplicity and sincerity. Sincerity means that what you say is true and you say what you mean. And simplicity means that you say things as clearly, as simply as you mean, as you, as you mean them. There is a, a directness, there is a, an integrity, there is nothing hidden. Holiness 
is part of that, that there is no ulterior motive or agenda, no side meetings, no gossip, no backbiting. It is simple. What you see is what you get. What you see is all that there is. Now, again, in leadership, sometimes there are conversations that you have with people, especially with your fellow leaders, that you can't share fully with others because there's a, an issue of confidentiality. But the hallmarks of good leadership are that are transparency as far as possible. Talking directly to people rather than about people, always seeking to make sure that you're not indulging in gossip or slander, that, that meetings, if there are going to be a meetings, include everybody who should be at the meeting, that everybody who should know about it knows about it, that you are sincere. And Paul can say with a clear conscience before God that that is how he had conducted himself. Christian leaders today would do well to learn the same lesson. Simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. If you want to see a definition of of wisdom that comes from below, earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, look at James chapter 3. That's a, a way of thinking that is driven by selfish ambition or rivalry, or even that sees a good end but, but pursues unworthy means. You know, sometimes there is a good end, a good, a good thing that you're trying to achieve through having a meeting, but you go about it the wrong way and that causes hurt and division, even though the purpose, the intention was good. We need godly wisdom by the grace of God. We need to rely on the gift of God that he will give of wisdom. And he says, we've acted this way supremely so towards you. If there's anywhere where Paul could say that he had acted with simplicity and sincerity, it was Corinth, the church where perhaps he had had to be most careful of all because of the mess that was there and the, the various issues, the divisions that were there that he talks about in 1 Corinthians and also the sin issues that were there. So Paul says this and he, he says in verse 13, we're not writing anything other than what you read and acknowledge. In other words, uh, they, you know, this is the same Paul that they had met in person, the same Paul who has written to them before. He, he's not going to be a different person now than he was then. Uh, and he's trusting that they will boast in him. Now, because of that, he wanted to come to them. He intended to visit them verses 15 and 16. But the question that they might raise is, well, hang on, Paul, it's hardly very sincere when you tell us you're going to come and visit us and then instead you send us a letter. Where is the love in that? Where is the commitment to us? Where's the simplicity in that? You say one thing and you do another. That's the accusation that presumably some in Corinth were making, or at least that Paul expected that some would make. So the question, it's a legitimate one, was he vacillating? Was he wavering between two options? Did he make his plans according to the flesh, where he says yes and no at the same time? He, he has no integrity, he can't be relied upon to, make his, uh, to do what he says. It's a serious accusation and Paul takes it seriously. And how he responds to that is to say, verse 18, as surely as God is faithful. Notice that by the very character of God who is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. 
And I want you to notice that how Paul, how seriously Paul takes this, because for him, if the Corinthians begin to doubt his trustworthiness, whether he would lie to them about his intention to come to them, then they might actually begin to doubt the very message that he had preached. His trustworthiness as a messenger of Jesus is tied up with how they receive the message of Jesus. The message and the messenger cannot be separated. That's a big challenge for those of us who preach the gospel. How can we expect people to trust our words, even though those words are the truth of God and not our ideas, if they cannot trust us? A trust, a message, a trustworthy message that calls us to trust in God deserves trustworthy messengers who can be trusted. And so Paul says, no, no, we weren't vacillating. We weren't uh, hesitant. We weren't deceiving you or pretending one thing and then doing another. No, the son of God is not like that. And so as God is faithful, Jesus is not like that. The one we proclaim to you was not yes and no. In him it is always yes. All of God's promises find a yes in him. That's why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's a beautiful statement. The gospel is a yes and amen. The gospel is affirming the promises of God to us. The things that God has promised to us in Christ Jesus, we can rely upon. He is the father of all compassion and all mercies, as we saw at the beginning of chapter one of Second Corinthians. And he will comfort us. He will deliver us. He will hold us securely. He will give us the gift of eternal life. We can rely on God for these things. He will give us his empowering spirit. He will give us forgiveness of sins. All of this is true. You can rely on God. And so you should be able to rely on those who speak in the name of God. It is God who establishes us. Verse 21 with you in Christ and has anointed us and put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now again, notice this, it's beautiful. In verse 20, you have God's promises affirmed to us in Christ so that we say, Amen. Amen, of course, means let it be so. That's why at the end of prayers, we should say, Amen. Actually, we should really say it at the, at the end of other people's prayers, saying, we agree and let it be so, God. Uh, but often we say it at the end of our own prayers, and that's also fine. But if you are in a prayer meeting and others are praying, why not say a verbal amen at the end to show your agreement with their prayer? They're leading you in prayer too. So we add our amen, and God does what? God establishes us in Christ. And then three things that he says that refer to the Holy Spirit. He has anointed us. Now, Paul is not saying that because he's a preacher. Sometimes people talk, and I've heard it in prayer particularly, that, Lord, would you anoint Paul uh, afresh today as he preaches? Or, or sometimes they say, we thank you for Paul's anointing, meaning that they think God has gifted me to teach. But actually in the New Testament, the term anointing is only used of the giving of the Spirit to all Christians. In 1 John, John writes that we all have an anointing. In other words, it's not only that some Christians are anointed with the gift of preaching or anointed to lead. That's an Old Testament idea. Kings and priests and prophets were anointed, but not all the people. 
But in the New Testament, all are anointed with the Spirit of God. So when Paul says, who has put, who has anointed us, he, he says in verse 21, who establishes us with you. So I think the us for the anointing is not just Paul and Timothy and Silas, but also the Corinthians, all of us as Christians. And the seal of the Spirit has been put on us. The authority of God that, that seals us, that keeps us for the day of salvation. And the Spirit is in our hearts as a guarantee. These are words of assurance. There is the word of our response to the gospel, the amen that we add for the glory of God. And there is the work of God in our lives. You see that coming beautifully together. We believe and God is the one who saves us by his spirit. And so Paul says, he calls God to witness, verse 23. Notice that again. He wants to absolutely affirm to them that he can be trusted. The reason he didn't come to Corinth was to spare them. It wasn't because he was going to let them down or he, he wouldn't keep his promise, but because he decided it would be better for them. And then look at verse 24. What a beautiful little statement of what Christian ministry is about, Christian leadership. Not that we lord it over your faith. That's a phrase the Lord Jesus used. He said that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And they uh, like to be called titles and uh, they, they like to call the short shots. But not so with you. Uh, so you can read about that in Matthew 20, verse 25. That's not how it should be with you. The one who wants to be greatest must be the servant of all. And Paul knows that that's the heart of Christian ministry. It is not to come and lord it over people, to dictate to them and direct them, to tell them what to do, but to work with them for their joy. He doesn't lord it over their faith, even though he is an apostle of Christ. So he has an authority, and he will talk about that later, an authority to build them up, not to tear them down, he says later on in 2 Corinthians. But, but, but no Christian leader can force a person to respond to the gospel or to the truth of God. All that we can do is in humility to present God's truth to his people and to trust that they will respond with a good conscience in faith to God. But Paul is confident that they stand firm in their faith. They are genuine believers and so he wants to work with them for their joy. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says something very similar. He says, we work with you or worked with you for your uh, your progress and joy in the faith. I love that. Progress, growing to know more about God and to know, more, go, know God more. Growing in your service of God. Growing in your faith in God. But also enjoying it. And here he says, we work with you for your joy. I love that. Christian leader, please realise that your people are meant to be joyful. And you have a role to play in helping them to find joy in God by reminding them of the goodness of God, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, the great gospel truth by presenting Jesus to them and delighting them with him. That's how you work with people for their joy. Now, that doesn't mean that you never challenge them or talk about their sin. Paul did. 
Uh, and that's part of finding joy, because if you have sin that you have not repented of, you haven't confessed and dealt with before God, you cannot know his joy. And so Paul, Paul is saying, look, that's what our desire is. The only goal, the only agenda that we have for you, Corinthians, is your joy in Christ and your standing firm in the faith. And so Paul decided not to make another painful vi visit. He wrote to them instead, and he hoped that they would share in his joy and that they, he that when he eventually came to them, he wouldn't suffer pain from them. Now let's read before we finish this episode, just verses 5 to 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We'll end our reading after verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 2. So if I'm right, then this man uh, is the centre of the issue that Paul had tried to confront the Corinthians with when he first visited to them, that he had written about. But it seems that the majority who had agreed with Paul when he visited had followed his advice about disciplining this man. But then actually they had gone further. Paul was now afraid that they would discipline without love that they would not reaffirm their love for the man, that he would be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, that they would not offer him forgiveness and comfort. It seems to Paul, or at least Paul hopes, that the man has truly repented. And so uh, he wrote to test them and to find out whether they were obedient in everything. Presumably they had written back to Paul and they had told him what measures they had taken. And Paul is now concerned that they are being excessive. They have to forgive and they can be sure that Paul too will forgive anyone whom they forgive. And indeed, he says, I've forgiven already what I've forgiven for the sake, for your sake in the presence of Christ. I love that in verse 10. We forgive others for their sake in the presence of Christ. When you come into the presence of Christ and pray about a brother or sister who has wronged you, and who has repented of that wrong, you cannot withhold forgiveness from them. You can't be in the presence of Christ who has forgiven you and who has commanded you to forgive them without extending forgiveness to them. If you do come into the presence of Christ, you must desire restoration with them. And Paul recognises that what is at stake here is the scheme of the evil one. He doesn't want them to be outwitted by Satan. He's not ignorant of, the, of Satan's designs. And it seems to me that in issues like this, Satan's designs are twofold. First of all, he would try to get a church to ignore sin and a person who has sinned to ignore it and to be unrepentant so that the church can be destroyed in its reputation and its holiness. But if the person then does repent, Satan's next tactic is to try and make those who were wronged refuse to forgive. 
refuse to hold out restoration, refuse to love that person as a brother. We must guard against both, both errors. Where there is sin in the church, it should be dealt with. There should be repentance. There should be forgiveness. There should be restoration. Only if the person won't repent should there be no hope of restoration. Now, slight difference, by the way, a slight caveat. If the person who has sinned was in leadership, it may be that you restore them to fellowship, but not to leadership because they uh, have not shown trustworthiness in leadership. Uh, or at least you might need a period of time for them to show their reliability again. But in terms of restoring them as a brother, loving them well, fellowshipping with them, that should be possible if a person has repented. And if we won't do it, then we are giving Satan an opening, causing division, which is exactly what he wants to do. So I love the way Paul puts this. Sin had to be dealt with. He made sure that it was. But let's be forgiving and loving and let's seek to restore our brother. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus talk, talked about in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother has something against you, or what Paul taught in Galatians 6, the first couple of verses, restore a brother gently. Don't let him be overcome with excessive sorrow, but bring him or her, a sister too, back into fellowship when they confess their sin and they accept the discipline of the church. 